All right. Well, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at River City. I'm Becky's husband, only husband. Um, anyway, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, so anyway, uh, like I said, uh, my wife is Becky. We have three daughters who are at Hempstead, Roosevelt, and Carver. So we have a lot of talking in our house, believe it or not. That's the way we like it, though. So anyway, so if this is your first time here, just wanted to play catch up a little bit. Just so we are in the middle of our preaching series in 1 Corinthians. So, uh, so that is a book in the, old, in the New Testament. So about 2,000 years ago, 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in, that he planted about five years prior in the Roman city of Corinth. So, so Corinth was a wealthy port city. Um, it was a pretty new city, had a lot of new money as opposed to old money. So kind of like a first century version of Silicon Valley. So the Roman Empire, they had actually destroyed the city and then re, uh, rebuilt it and resettled it. So Corinth was, actually, was full, a city full of aspirationally, aspirational people who are upwardly mobile people, like just looking to make new lives for themselves, kind of like a lot of cities these days. So, and knowing that context is really important for understanding Paul's letter to the church in the city of Corinth, because um, these, this deeply aspirational, upwardly mobile mindset, that was at the very core of the city's culture. So, like, that's what we need to understand for background. That's the key background there that we need to know to understand this letter here. So, and what's going on in this passage. So, everything in the Corinthian culture revolved around climbing the social and economic ladder and maintaining your place at the top of the ladder. And then that's the thing that everyone cared about most deeply. So, and unfortunately, the local church in Corinth was actually no exception because, as we've seen throughout this preaching series that Brandon's been preaching, um, the highest priority of the people in the Corinthian church was their own glory and their own social advancement, as opposed to God's glory and the gospel's advancement. So that was the underlying root cause of the vast majority of the issues in this church in Corinth. So as we systematically preach through this book, because we start at the beginning, then we just kind of work our way through it. So this morning, the next passage that we've come to is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. So that'll be up on the screen. And again, this was a letter written by Paul to this local church in the city of Corinth. So when the, the church received this letter, they got up in front of the church and they read it out loud, kind of like what I'm going to be doing right here. So, so let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. That's a great point. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of it is my, of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person among you. Woof, man. So, uh, so Brandon is uh, the one who regularly preaches through, preaches here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he told me at the beginning of this preaching series that I could preach on, oh, I, I told him that, like, I could preach on anything you want me to do. And he told, he gave me this one to preach on. Like, <laughs> this would be like the worst Mother's Day sermon of all time. Like, I don't know. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all scripture, not some, all scripture is God-breathed. And that, that God-breathed language right there, that's just an artsy way of saying that it was uniquely created by God. And that passage in 2 Timothy 3 goes on to say, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. So when it says all scripture is useful for those things, that includes a passage like this. So John Stott once said, if we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. And the corollary to that is that one of the ways that you know that you're interacting with the real God is if he can disagree with you about things. Does God ever significantly differ in his viewpoints with you about anything? Or does he just coincidentally have all the same thoughts and opinions and sensibilities that you do? If the God you worship can never actually disagree with you or actually confront you, that's not God. That's just you. One of the ways that you've know, you know that you've met the true God of the universe is that he can tell you that he, you're wrong. And yes, God's word is intended to comfort us. It's intended to encourage us 100% on that team. I'm all in on that, okay? Yes, but sometimes he confronts us. And this morning in this passage, like you might feel confronted. And on a heart level, you might feel the impulse to stiff arm that confrontation or dismiss that confrontation. And if that's you, the main question isn't what you're dismissing. The main question is who you're dismissing. And I'll just really encourage you this morning, don't dismiss who God is and what he has to say to this morning. So with that in mind, um, I just want us to see this morning that based on this passage, we should desire to be in a healthy, gospel-centered church that's characterized by taking sin and restoration seriously. We should desire to be in a healthy, gospel-centered church 
that's characterized by taking sin and restoration seriously. And in a lot of really surprising and good ways, this passage points to God's vision for community. And that vision for community is rooted in loving people so much that you want for them what is best for them for the longest period of time. So let's pray. So God, uh, we're, we're thankful for you. Um, we know that we are interacting with the true God of the universe when, like, when we realize that like, you can comfort and encourage us and confront us sometimes. So we're thankful for who you are. Thank you for wanting, for being um, committed to your own glory and for our good simultaneously. So we just pray that this will be good news for us. That the gospel would just be just really clear and just I pray you'll just really unify us as a church just around what you have to say because you are God. And we love you. Amen. So in this passage, we truly see an out-of-control situation. We see that word has gotten back to Paul, who is away on a missionary journey, that there is, verse 1, sexual immorality among you, meaning among people who are part of the church in Corinth. So he's not referring to people who are outside the church, who don't claim to follow Jesus. He's talking about people in the church in Corinth who self-identify as followers of Jesus. And this sex, sexual morality is of a certain kind. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the phrase, his father's wife, right there, that indicates that this is probably his stepmom, which is a problem for numerous reasons, one of which is that even the surrounding pagan cultural, culture, which was very sexually permissive, mind you, even they didn't tolerate that. Verse 1 says, even the pagans don't tolerate that. Even they thought it was crazy. Like, it's good to love your mom, but not like that. Like, everybody knew in the culture that was crazy. But inside the Corinthian church, like, no big deal. No big deal. To which Paul says in verse 2, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And in verse 5, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that he may be saved on the day of the Lord. So he says, as a church, you need to take this man's sin seriously. In verse 5, you need to take the restoration of this man seriously. In verse 6 through 8, you need to take Jesus seriously as it relates to growth and change and everything else in your church. And verse 11 strongly hints at you need to take the reputation of the gospel seriously. And, and this may be surprising, um, but like in situations like this, uh, situations like this is actually something that we talk about in our membership class. So one of the things I always say in our membership class is that we actually have a planned step-by-step -step process for situa extreme situations like this because passages like this rightfully tell us two things. One, crazy stuff like this actually happens. And two, like Paul soberly warns us that situations like this are a really big deal for a lots of reasons. So the example that I always give in our, our membership class, and mind you, this is a fictional like example, and I talked to my daughters about this ahead of time, so I didn't get a million questions about this, like on the drive home and everything. Okay, so 
Um, but the example I always give in our membership classes, if I decide that I don't want to be married anymore, so I skip out on my family and I move in with my girlfriend. Which, by the way, side note, if that ever happens, like, there are uh, things written in our bylaws in such a way that like, I can be very easily be fired for that, which I should be fired for that, because if, that, if I do that, uh, I am not spiritually qualified to lead anybody, okay? So no offense against my job, okay? But like, I should be fired, okay? I hope that's not controversial. All right, so, so I skip out of my family, I move in with my girlfriend, but I also really like Brandon's preaching, and man, this building is so darn trendy and cool, and this pallet wall is a wonderful. It's like, so I move in, skip out of my family, move in with my girlfriend, and I was just like, I just really love coming here, so I just sit in the back row right behind Becky and the girls. Like, no, like, you can't skip out on your family and come back in here with your girlfriend and terrorize your family like that. Allowing me to be there with my girlfriend isn't loving to Becky and the girls. Allowing me to be there isn't loving to me because it further enables my delusion that what I'm doing is spiritually and relationally just totally fine and it's totally in line with the gospel. And allowing, allowing me to be there certainly isn't stewarding the reputation of the gospel in Dubuque. Oh, who's that guy sitting in the back row? Oh, that's Aaron. He used to be a pastor here, but he skipped out on his family, moved in with his girlfriend, and he comes here now. He's part of the community. He comes to the Tuesday night small group. <laughs> if your friends and neighbors and coworkers who aren't Christians came here and heard that, they'd be like, What? Verse 1, even the pagans don't tolerate that. For my good and the reputation of the gospel and in a spirit of mourning, see that in verse 2, that language there? In a spirit of mourning, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. That's because from God's perspective, when something like that happens, it's as if someone spiritually pulled a pin on a grenade and they just placed it right in the middle of the church. In a spirit of mourning, something drastic needs to be done or else unspeakable amounts of spiritual damage is going to be happening. There's not a flippant tone in this passage at all. On the contrary, there's a, a weightiness dripping from these verses. So we need to accept the confrontation that this is part, not all, part, but part of God's vision for a healthy spiritual community in the local church. But we would also be missing out on a lot of God's heart and intentions for us as a church if we just pigeonhole this passage as only pertaining to the most extreme situations. In this passage, Paul is pointing out um, just a variety of principles that help create a healthy local church community. That's why I mentioned earlier that according to this passage, we should desire to be in a healthy, gospel-centered church that's characterized by taking sin and restoration seriously. So if you self-identify as a follower of Christ, you should want to be, and you want to be shaped by the gospel down to the core of your being, then this is the kind of healthy community that God envisions you to be a part of. If you're a parent, your goal is to create an environment where your kids are flourishing, 
physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Sometimes in that goal, that entails like just giving, giving your kids what they want. But, like, but a lot of times, like it doesn't because a good, ultimately a good parent focuses on what their kids need, not what they want. If you only give your kid what they want, you will ruin their lives. That's not what a good parent does, and that's not what a good mother does. That's not what a good father does. And God self-identifies in his self-revelation in Scripture, like he self-identifies himself as a father. And our fatherly God says that this kind of environment is what we need to flourish in a local church community, which is characterized by taking sin and restoration seriously. So let's talk about each of those things, like taking sin seriously and restoration seriously. We'll first talk about taking sin seriously. So the problem with the Corinthians in this passage was pretty deep, and it's not just that they were shrugging their shoulders about this professing believer who was sleeping with his stepmom. The problem is that they were excited about it. Verse 2, and you are proud. This is a badge of honor for you. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Like, they were bragging about this? The Corinthians were proud of this man's sin. And knowing the background of Corinthian culture, which I talked about at the beginning of this sermon here, like, we can reasonably infer that um, this man probably had a high social status in the Corinthian society. So the believers were probably just really excited to have this man in their church. And because in one way or another, a significantly associating with this man was a means to improving or maintaining their standing in the Corinthian society. And the principle of what Paul is pointing to in this passage is that healthy, a healthy gospel-centered church takes sin seriously. And please hear me on this. Okay, okay, like, okay, all eyes on me. Okay, like, okay, don't miss this. We should note that Paul does not tell them to get self-righteously angry about this man's sin? No, no, no. Like, in verse 2, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? When you see your own sin or the sin of other professing believers, is there something in your spirit that mourns? And maybe mourning sounds really overwrought to you. And yeah, of course, like Paul isn't saying like when we see like a professing believer sin that like we just like break into tears and start painting our fingernails black. Okay, like he's not saying that, of course. Okay, but like, and plus like not everyone is emotionally wired like that, like in this deeply emotive kind of way. But when you see the word mourning in verse two, think about it this way. It's just having like a compassionate sadness in your spirit that has zero self-righteousness to it a compassionate sadness in your spirit that has zero self-righteousness to it. So when you see your own sin or the sin of other professing believers, does it bother you to the point of a compassionate sadness in your heart? Does it bother you to the point of mourning? If you or a friend here at church is secretly looking at porn, does that bother you to the point of mourning? If you or a friend here at church is living and sleeping with someone who isn't, you're not covenanted covenanted together in marriage, does that bother you to the point of mourning? If you or a friend here at church is harboring bitterness and anger in your heart towards someone, does that bother you to the point of mourning? 
If you or a friend here at church like are cultivating factions at work or at church for the sake of their own career advancement or their own social capital, does that bother you to the point of mourning? And if we see these kinds of things in others at River City or in your small group, we would do well to not go the route of the Corinthians and be happy and proud about it. If we follow the contours of this passage, it should bother us to the point of mourning. It should bother us to the point of having a compassionate sadness in our spirit that's completely absent of self-righteousness. And also hear me on this. Like, taking sin seriously, don't miss this part, um, that doesn't mean that as a community we just turn into the sin police with each other or blitz each other with hard conversations. Like, of course not, okay? Because certainly this isn't the only passage in Scripture that speaks to the complex tapestry of situations that might or might not warrant a compassionate but assertive conversation with a fellow a professing believer. And addressing that complex trap tapestry is outside the scope of this sermon. But if you want to hear a whole sermon about that issue, about the, the when and the why and the how of caring enough to confront, then um, there's a River City sermon from July 13th, 2019, called Upside Down Confrontation. That would be a great place to start from July 13th, 2019. But as far as this sermon is concerned, if we follow Paul's line of thinking in this passage, we need to conclude that a healthy, gospel-centered church takes sin seriously. And when it does, it comes not in the form of self-righteousness, but it comes in the form of a compassionate sadness. That's how it comes packaged as, a compassionate sadness and a mourning. So let's talk about the next one. We should desire to be in a healthy gospel-centered church that's characterized by taking restoration seriously. It's characterized by taking restoration seriously. Paul says in verse 5, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. When it says, hand this man over to Satan, that's a pretty bold theological way of saying, remove this man from the church. Because from a big-picture theological perspective, those who are outside the church are in the realm of darkness because they're not without the message of the gospel right there. It's like, that's all it means. And we can all clearly see that that kind of phraseology from Paul is bold, but don't let the boldness of that phraseology distract you from seeing that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to have a restorative impulse with this guy. He's calling them to have a restorative and redemptive intention. So according to Paul, putting this man out of the church isn't for the purpose of making him pay or shaming him or punitively canceling him or tarring and feathering him or any other kind of retribution or punishment. No, Paul is saying that taking this action is ultimately for the purpose of, verse 5, the destruction of this man's flesh. And if that phraseology is something that you're not familiar with, like in the Bible, the word flesh right there, that's a fancy word that the Bible uses for the internal desires in our heart to go, go our way instead of God's way. It describes our internal impulse to just rebel against God. And even if you want to follow God, but you just kind of want to do it on your terms, it's like, that is the flesh. That's what the Bible would use, the word Bible you would use to describe flesh. And that's the ultimate problem with the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. 
And Paul says that in, the, in God's economy of restoration and redemption, this drastic action of putting this man outside the church is intended to provoke this man to self-examination in the hopes of shattering his spiritually toxic self-delusion that he's living in line with the gospel. And that's in the hope that, verse 5, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's not a punitive line of thinking. No, that line of thinking reflects a non-self-righteous heart for restoration and redemption because the man is going to meet Jesus someday. And in God's economy of restoration and redemption, it's not loving to this man to just let him carry on in his spiritually toxic self-delusion. Paul wants this man to be saved. Paul wants the Corinthian church to want this man to be saved. And just to be clear, this isn't shunning where you don't talk to the guy. So Jeff White, he's a pastor at the church that Tim Keller planted in New York. So he makes the argument that you can't achieve the outcomes of verse 5 without ongoing, prolonged conversation with the guy and imploring him to come back to Jesus and in doing so to come back to the people of God. The heart behind this is restoration and redemption. That's because the aim of the gospel is always restoration and redemption. And that's why when it comes to any kind of sin in the church, not just extreme stuff that requires like drastic action, like a guy sleeping with his stepmom or me skipping, skipping out of my family, but any kind of sin, the aim is restoration and redemption. The aim is never punishment or shaming or winning or exerting your influence or making a point or any kind of other, other kind of self-righteous religious garbage. The aim is restoration and redemption. And everyone who follows Jesus should, at the core of their being, want to be in a community that's committed to restoration and redemption. And whether you realize it or not, everyone, you, everyone out there, is hardwired to want to be a part of that community. Like, have you ever noticed that all the great movies and stories, like, like they're, they're written by people who aren't Christians. Like, they all have these, like, restorative and redemptive, like, elements to all those stories. Like, every, and that's not just American culture. That's every culture in the world has redemptive analogies just woven into their pieces of art and just, like, and their storytelling. And you know why that is? Like, from a non-Christian perspective, it's because... You know, it's just like, well, that's just good storytelling and plot development, and it just kind of moves your heart and evokes this, like a certain like emotional response. It's like, well, you know, it's like, no, no, like, and I'm not being pretentious about like, oh, I have this special knowledge here, but like, man, from a Christian perspective, we know why that's so universally common. It's because every person on earth is made in the image of God. So there is something that's hardwired into our hearts that yearns and longs for restoration and redemption. We all know that's true. That's why those kinds of movies and stories like captures our hearts and just it drives our imaginations. That's why at the core of our being, we want to be in a community that's committed to restoration and redemption. A community like that changes us and transforms us. 
A healthy, restorative, and redemptive community is life-giving because that kind of community is inundated with people who want for you what is best for you for the longest period of time because that's what love is. Like, I want to belong to a community that wants for me what is best for me for the longest period of time. And lastly, but most importantly, we should be reminded that this passage, by this passage that the only way that a healthy, gospel-centered community like this is formed is by focusing on Jesus and what he's done for us. Verses 6 through 8 highlights that. So the background and, and richness of, uh, of verses 6 through 8 are deep, but suffice to say, Paul gives like, uh, the Corinthian church a first-century baking analogy because apparently everybody likes to eat, okay? Because like, that's the way it is. So, like, so he talks about how sin in a community is like yeast working its way through the whole batch of dough. And the way that the Corinthian church um, keeps that from happening is through dually being committed to taking sin seriously and being committed to restoration and redemption. And in doing so, according to Paul, the community, verse 7, becomes an unleavened batch. But then he, and this is the key part here, but then he adds something really surprising at the end of that sentence, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, dash, as you really are. And he follows that up by saying, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So what he's saying is that as a community, when you take sin seriously and you're committed to restoration and redemption, you're in the process of becoming what you already are. And from a gospel perspective, what are you? If you have placed your trembling, life-changing, repentant faith in Jesus, then right now you are as holy as you are loved. And you are infinitely loved. I wouldn't focus on how lovable you are. No, no, no. So there's something better than being lovable. There's something better than being lovable, which is being loved. Take your eyes off yourself. Put it on God. I am loved I am as holy right now as I am loved because I put my faith in Christ. And we are infinitely loved. Why? Verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus lived the, perfect lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. And he died the death that you were supposed to die. Your sin is so treacherously bad that Jesus had to die. But you are so deeply loved by the Father that he was happy to die for you. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's through faith in Christ that he has made perfect forever those who are in the messy process of being made holy. Paul says, become what you already are. Your position in Christ is the foundation of everything in your life. Focusing on Jesus is the only way that a local church can be healthy and flourishing over time and over the long haul. So at River City, let's continue to be a people who individually and collectively focuses on Christ and what he's done for us. Submitting to him and letting, letting him lovingly encourage us and lovingly comfort us and lovingly confront us at times. 
And as we move into a time of communion, for everyone in this room, God is calling you to surrender to him and remember him as your forgiver and as your leader. In communion, like the bread symbolizes his body, the drink, it symbolizes his blood, and those things are, were broken and shed for you. So when we surrender to Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus, that changes us individually and it forms us as a community. When we surrender to Jesus, it frees us to take off the mask that we've been wearing. When we surrender to Jesus, it frees us to be a part of a spiritual family that's, that's committed to wanting for each other what is best for each other for the longest period of time. And that's the heart of Christ for you. He wants for you what is best for you for the longest period of time. And that starts with surrendering to him. So I would encourage you to pray before you take communion. Um, like we always mentioned, like talk to him authentically and don't make it some kind of like religious exercise that you just kind of go through the motions with. Like if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion so that it's just not like this empty ritual and everything. But here's the big deal. Like if you're ready to respond to him as your forgiver and as your leader and you want to surrender yourself to him, then the worship team is going to be coming up here and like they're going to be playing four songs and that's when we're going to be taking communion but like during those first couple songs like if you aren't a follower of Jesus just like talk to him and respond to him authentically on a heart level and surrender to him and just talk to him about your sin and just let him um, let him purify you through faith in him and just like talk to him about that in the first couple songs then go take communion that's his invitation to you. So if you didn't grab it on the way in, there's communion cups like on the right and left in the back right there. Um, and the worship, like I said, the worship team is going to be playing four songs. And then you can come on, you can just take communion whenever you're ready during those four songs. So let's pray. So God, um, we're really thankful that um, you are committed to us. Thanks for... Um, living on our behalf and dying on our behalf and just loving us. And thank you for being our good friend. Thank you for encouraging us and comforting us and oh, just, man, and even like confronting us at times. Like, um, yeah, we need you, God. Please give us the, um, the grace to surrender to you and like seeing your goodness and your grace and just um, how that's really worth it. We love you. Amen.